my name is Bruce Narverson, one of the elders serving you here at Redeemer. And it's my privilege to read the scriptures this morning that Ross will be preaching from. It's Philippians chapter 1, 1 through 11, uh, and has been our practice. If you would please stand as I read the word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayers with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, last week, Dan kicked off our new sermon series where we'll be looking at Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, and we looked at how that church was born from um, the book of Acts, and it really was a testimony of the transforming, unifying power of the gospel. And now we fast forward roughly 10 years later. Paul has continued to help advance the gospel through the known world, but now he's in chains for the gospel in Rome. And as he writes to them uh, in his, this response, in this letter, it's a response to um, both a gift and a report that had come to him from Epaphroditus, who, by the way, almost died on his way to bring it to Paul from Philippi. But we see in Paul's letter to them, that he is not discouraged that he's in chains, but rather he is filled with joy, a joy that transcends his circumstances. And so I'm excited for the Holy Spirit to teach us as well through this passage and through this book, um, just how we can too have a joy that transcends our circumstances. So would you pray with me and as we ask God to encourage us from this passage. Father, we ask that you would send the same Holy Spirit who inspired this word through the pen of Paul long ago to open our hearts to its truths today as they are just as relevant for us today. Uh, would you cleanse the palates of our hearts of apathy, distraction, pride, or rebellion so that we may be really hungry for this bread of life that feeds our souls and nourishes our hearts for your work and fills us with the joy that truly is our strength. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you've maybe seen 
probably all have seen the 80s hit Princess Bride. And in that movie, there is this sort of brash character named Vizzini who um, rather annoyingly, toward, you know, in the first part of the movie, keeps using the word inconceivable about almost everything. And there's this moment where one of his comrades in this scene that has now enjoyed renewed fame uh, as a meme on social media, his comrade uh, Inigo Montoya kind of looks at him confusedly and says, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. And while that scene can often be used in a sort of condescending way in people's lives, my hope is to be more gently instructive, but there is a word that we use often in Christian circles that has a much fuller meaning than I think we all realize, and that word is fellowship. We often mean by that word just, you know, hanging out and having a good time. You know, we had good fellowship. We connected well. And those are beautiful things and and beautiful gifts that God gives us. And while that word in the Christian life certainly doesn't mean less than that, it does mean much more. And I think our failure to fully comprehend that word uh, and only use its surface meaning is kind of indicative of a deeper issue, of our propensity to lone ranger our walk with Christ and embrace the individualism around us and enter in at our own pace and our own convenience to the life of the church and um, into the lives of our faith. And so that word fellowship happens often in the New Testament. It is a very biblical word, and it comes from the Greek word koinonia, which is very central in this passage before us this morning. Did you notice how joyful Paul is right at the outset of this letter? And look at verses 3 to 5 and verses 7 and 8 and just... He really is starting off this letter on the right side of the bed. He is in, excited to be writing to them. But what's got him so joyful? It's a number of things, but in this passage we see one of the things is their partnership in the gospel. That is something that has Paul so encouraged. And, and you guessed it, the word there for partnership in the Greek is koinonia. Koinonia is one of those words, kind of like agape, in Greek that is hard to communicate in English uh, because it has such a deep meaning in the original language. Um, It's translated here partnership. Most English translations use that word partnership here, which is a, a really helpful interpretation of that word. It's the idea of togetherness, of closeness, of family, of teamwork, of participation, being in it together. And the rest of this passage is all about that idea of koinonia. It's it's really a key to understanding it, uh, this partnership in the gospel. You see Philippi partnering with Paul. You see Paul, uh, all through this passage, partnering with Philippi in their faith. But even a deeper fellowship and partnership is at play, and that is a heavenly koinonia between God and his people that we see throughout this passage. And it's an important word In the rest of the letter of Philippians, as we'll see, and it's a very important word for us today in our own walk with Christ, and especially as it relates to our relationship with the church. So I want to ask from this passage this morning, what does it mean that we are partners in the gospel? What does it mean that we are a koinonia together? And I want to look at three aspects of that that this passage shows us, that it means acceptance, ownership, and dependence. So first of all, it means acceptance. If you look at verse 1, it starts off, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. We can sometimes quickly brush over those opening words of Paul's letters. We, we, we need to kind of slow down and, and see how profound it is that call, Paul calls them all saints. Uh, that's a word that can often be misunderstood uh, in our lives. It can usually be used for Christians of unusual achievement through the ages, maybe like Saint Augustine, or just kind of reserved for the godliest among us. But the truth is, every believer, everyone who trusts in Christ is a saint. When Paul addresses the Philippians as saints, he's referring to everyone in the church. And and as we'll see, there were some rascals in that church, as there are in our church, and I'm probably the chief example of that. But he calls them all saints. And Paul is not just addressing the Bible study leaders in that church or just the, you know, most sacrificial volunteers. They are all saints. And why? Because they are in Christ Jesus, one of Paul's favorite phrases. The righteousness and the presence of Christ is ours, and we are saints, which means we are holy ones. We are set apart. A kind of a picture that comes to my mind as Paul starts the letter off this way is, is, is a scene from the movie Blood Diamond, where there's this father uh, in, in the country Africa where um, he has a son who's about 10 years old who gets uh, kidnapped by a rebel army, and that army really kind of manipulates him. Um, to, to hate his family and to do, he kind of trains him to do evil things. And later in the movie, there's a confrontation between the son and his father. And uh, the son is in a position to take his father's life. And the father is able to just really look him in the eyes, even just look deep into his soul and start reminding him of who he is. Tells him about his mother, tells him about his siblings and about the animals at their house that he used to love to play with and the meals his mother would cook. And of course, he talks about his relationship with his son as his father. And you just start seeing the tears run down the child's face um, as he puts down his weapon and they really embrace each other. And it's, it's a beautiful picture of the power of our identity, of remembering who we are. You see the impact, the immense impact it had on that boy in that moment. Um, And it has an impact on our lives as well when we are able to remember who we are in Christ. And I think we all could use a good reminding of that again this morning. We can be a confused people, finding our identity in in, in so many helpful places. And we can be a discouraged people, uh, overwhelmed by our, our shortcomings. But this passage and this letter starts off beautifully reminding us of who we are, that we are saints in Christ Jesus. We are holy ones. We are accepted. So that's the first thing. I don't want to brush over that part of of this idea that we are um, a partnership. We have partnership in the gospel. Um, That first of all means that we have been accepted. We have been brought in to the family of God, even though we are unworthy. But as we continue, we also see that this implies a responsibility. To be a part of this fellowship um, has a responsibility. And so I want to talk about the idea of ownership. So there's acceptance, but there's also ownership tied to this idea of koinonia. We are stakeholders when we come into Christ's family um, in something, and we have a role to play. Uh, We're not just consumers, but we are contributors to the gospel. We need to recognize this and embrace it in our life. 
One way to think of it is the difference between a renter and an owner. Uh, you know, when I was first married, we, we rented an apartment. And in doing that, we didn't really care much about keeping up with painting the walls or taking good care of the pipes or, or fertilizing the lawn or changing the air filters because we didn't own the place. Uh, we didn't have to worry about that. But as soon as we owned our first house, that all changed. We had to learn a lot about how to keep the house in shape because we had a stake in it. We were owners of it. And we can often approach the Christian life and approach the church like with, with kind of a renter mentality. We like that God makes us feel good that we're going to heaven, and we like that the church can you know, preach sermons to us and, and, and help us sing songs. But we don't take ownership in it. We don't realize that we have an integral part to play in our Christian life. And so this idea of ownership is that we are a part of something bigger than us. We are called to take ownership when, when we are joined into the fellowship of God. And there's, there's two things that we are called in this passage to take ownership in, and that is God's mission and God's people. So God's mission, you see this in verse 6, you see it in verse 9 and verse 10. Let's look at verse 6. You know, there's this idea that God has saved us and that we are saints, but he is not, we have to remember, God has not just saved us from sin, but he's also saved us for something, for righteousness and for his mission. Verse 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Friends, we are genuinely new, but we are not totally new. You see that, and he began a good work. And that's the idea of we are saints in Christ. Uh, we are holy, but he will bring it to completion. Though we have been declared righteous, God is not done with us. We are not done being made fully righteous here this side of glory. And it doesn't take us long to be able to figure that out. I call this verse the Joanna Gaines verse. Um, think of the show Fixer Upper where um, they're you know, in another house that's really run down. And as Joanna's walking through it, the, the, the image kind of changes to how she sees the room. You know, maybe it's, it's a, you know, an old and raggedy kitchen, but she sees a beautiful backsplash. She sees some pendant lights. She sees uh, you know, a new faucet and, and, and just this beautiful, she, she can see the potential. She sees what this room is becoming. And we need that encouragement, that, that that's the way that God sees us as well. Uh, we don't often, though we know, as I just said, we are saints in Christ, we don't often feel that way. We don't love as we ought to. We don't, we're not as bold or courageous as we need to be. We feel like a broken down house. The roof is caving in, the floor is roughed up, the back porch is falling apart. But God sees who we are becoming. He's putting his finishing touches on us in our life, and he's not finished, and he's got more work for us, and he wants to keep growing us, and we need to take ownership in that uh, and recognize and embrace that. And first, verse 9 continues that idea, where Paul's prayer is that the Philippians' love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that they may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So the Philippians have shown how much love they have and the way they've treated Paul. But Paul wants them to keep growing in their love. And what does love look like to Paul here? Notice it's not a blind love that Paul is calling them to. Uh, he says that your love would abound with knowledge 
and, and discernment. What does that mean? There's one sense in which love is blind, where it transcends appearance, it transcends status, that it covers over many sins. But there's another sense in which Christian love requires vision. We need to see a need and recognize what needs to be done about it. Sinclair Ferguson, commenting on this passage, says, Love and insight need to go together. To love is to have the motivation to help. We need that compassion, but discernment enables us to see what the real need is. Love means we have compassion. Discernment means we see what the situation clearly and realistically. Parents, can I get an amen? I mean, this is, this is all over parenting. Um, love can look very different each day or between different children. And this is hard. And this is what love looked like in all of our life. And this is hard. It's deeply situational, case by case, and it requires discernment and wisdom. And this is why Paul is praying this for them. He knows it's hard. It's been hard in his own life. And this is why we need to keep growing in love because it's so dynamic. And there's so much more, friends, that could be said about verses 9 and 10, especially for the moment we find ourselves in where I think often love can be misdefined. But that will be a whole other sermon for another day. So God's mission, part of our ownership, we need to take ownership in God's mission, that God has saved us for something, uh, to be a part of something, and that's to continue growing and continue helping him in his mission. But also we need to take ownership in our, in our responsibility to God's people. We are on a team as believers. Kind of back to that renter and owner mindset. When you rent an apartment, you're not worried about the condition of the apartment too much. That's the landlord's issue. In a similar way, often we, can, we don't worry as much about other people at church. That's the elders. That's the pastor's problem. Let them deal with it. Koinonia means we are in this together. We are here for each other. This is a partnership. The Christian life is a partnership. And so that means taking responsibility for the growth and the building up of the church, all of us. And you see this in this letter. The Philippians are taking ownership in Paul's ministry. They were in it with him, even though he was far away. And notice the impact that that had on Paul. It gave him joy. I think part of why this, you know, many people call this the letter of joy. And there's many reasons we'll see for that, but one of them is this partnership that Paul had, that he realized that, that he had help that he wasn't at this alone. He was encouraged by that. But also see, Paul does the same to them. He takes ownership in the growth of the Philippians. He prays for them every day. Notice how much he prays for them in verse 3 and 4. But he also encourages them. He takes ownership in their, their building up by, by encouraging them. This is a great way to help another person. He shares with them how much joy they bring him, how much, confident he, how much confidence he has in what God is doing in their life. Verse 6 is, is a great theological statement, but it's also just a, a relational statement Paul is making to his friends. Even though we can know we're in Christ, sometimes we need another person to remind us and to, to take us deeper into that. And sometimes we can be afraid of encouragement. As believers, we can be afraid to, to encourage another believer. One author has, has kind of pointed that out. He said, Don't hold back an encouraging word out of a concern for a person's ego. That's not your responsibility. Nor hold back 
or, or Noah preface your glowing praise with a counterbalancing reminder of their flaws. Just encourage. Encourage people like they're desperately in need of it. Most people are. I think that's a, a really helpful word about this. Encouragement, biblical encouragement, is simply celebrating God's grace in someone's life. It's pointing out what God is doing for them. And Paul actually later in one of his letters commands us to be doing this for one another. So what would it look like for you or the people in your life to, to be an encourager, to not only recognize what God is doing, but be able to communicate in an encouraging way? And so fellowship, relationship is not an end in itself, we see. It's not aimless. Uh, and that's another aspect of, of what Paul's partnership with them is. It's not just an end in itself, but it has a purpose. It's, it's got a purpose of, of growing people in their faith. And verses 9 through 11 are the, the example of this. Paul is not just concerned with being friends with them, but, but in helping them and, and being concerned about their growth in Christ. True Christian fellowship is not just relationship for the sake of relationship, but it's heading somewhere. Um, we're to be helping each other. That's why I love the mission statement of this church hung right outside the door. Helping each other know and follow Jesus. That's where that phrase, helping each other, comes from. That's that idea of koinonia, that we are in this together. So the Philippians are invested in Paul's life, and Paul is invested in their life. This is what koinonia is. So friends, what would Redeemer look like if we were just as invested in each other's growth as we are in our own? I think even we can be challenged by that to just how, how invested are we right now in our own growth? I know I need that challenge. But even to think beyond that and say, what if we were as invested in the people in our community group or the, the people we sit by in their growth as our own? And, and I, I need to acknowledge just only a, even a short time, just a few months into my time here at Redeemer, that, that this is already very true at this church. This has been such an encouraging place for me to see how much this church is a family and how much you guys care about each other and, and are helping each other grow. But of course, like anything, we can keep growing in this, and this passage challenges us to that. So what might our attitudes towards our community group or our Bible study or, or our youth group or our church in general, how might our attitudes be different if we took ownership in them? If we're as invested in the growth of the group as we are our own growth, how much more might we be praying for each other and engaging uh, in the study together and encouraging one another? How might we engage in our own personal reading of the Bible differently if we realize that we need that time not just for our own hearts, but for the sake uh, of our brothers and sisters in Christ, for the sake of our family, for the sake of our coworkers, that Jesus can be shown through us because of our time in his word each day. God has designed the church to be built up by all of us. It is a community project. And that's that idea of koinonia, that this is a partnership. And that means, first of all, the beautiful truth of acceptance, uh, that we are accepted into this fellowship. But there's also a responsibility, there's ownership. But maybe most importantly, it also means dependence. 
this partnership, this koinonia means dependence. Not only does Paul give us a compelling picture of the power of partnership in the gospel, but he also shows us that we are not left alone in our pursuit of this. And this is good news for us this morning. Paul shows in so many ways how our horizontal fellowship is dependent on our vertical fellowship with God. How God enables in our relationship and our partnership with God enables and empowers us to take ownership of our role in his church. I see this in two ways in this passage, basking and bearing. You see the basking in God's glory in verse 8. Verse 8 is a beautiful verse. It says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. What does that mean? We see that Paul's experience of Christ's affection towards him directly results in him having affection towards the Philippians. The more we realize the affections that Christ has towards us, I think we just need to stop and and ask, how much do we really realize that? How much do we really embrace that? And the more we do, the softer our hearts are towards our loved ones, the more softer our hearts are towards um, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, you know, dependence to uh, be partners in the gospel involves really asking and, and having wonder for the affection Christ has in us. But it's also bearing bearing fruit. Verse 11, it says, kind of after he comes out of this this charge to grow in love and wisdom, he kind of, the, the ultimate picture of that is being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes, what? Through Christ Jesus. Through Jesus. And so the call here, one way to put what Paul is saying in verse 11 is the call to bear fruit, not produce fruit. We often get confused when we talk about bearing fruit, which is a very biblical idea. We we're kind of take it as meaning we need to produce this fruit, that we are through our lives supposed to produce holiness of ourselves. So we focus on the fruit when instead, think of John 15 here, I'm the vine, you're the branches. We need to focus mainly on the vine before the fruit. Do you see the difference there, producing versus bearing Think of childbearing. This is a good but not great illustration, as you'll see. But childbearing is a very intense moment in a couple's life, especially for the woman. But it's bearing. It's not an instance of production. That happened earlier. But there is a bearing, a nurturing that is going to eventually bring about fruit. I don't want to minimize the bearing of the child. That's where this illustration kind of breaks down because, of course, that's a very... uh, agonizing and painful moment, but this, this idea that something has been produced in you, something has been conceived in you, and that's, that's the same is true for us in Christ. Something has been conceived in us, and our job is to bear it into the world. Our job is not to produce it, but to bear it, to be the midwife, as it were, to bring the fruit of the vine that Christ produces in us into the world, and, and that's the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, that we all know. Francis Schaeffer, one pastor from a few decades ago, he calls this, I love this phrase, active passivity. It's actively allowing Christ to bear fruit through our lives. 
And so we bear fruit, but we recognize that it is through the life of the vine that the fruit comes into being. That's what this passage says. He says, bearing fruit, uh, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. So our job is to shepherd it. Our job is to be the midwife that allows Christ's love to come into the world through us, that he has placed inside of us. And so this, this idea of koinonia, of partnership in the gospel, that is a, a really amazing word that speaks to an astounding reality, helping us see the grace of Jesus in a new way, that we are accepted, that we are part of this fellowship in him. And it helps us see the dignity of our brothers and sisters in Christ and our role um, and to steward and our need to steward our role to help each other in our growth. And so I hope this idea and this word fellowship um, has even more meaning for us as we continue our journey as a church ahead. So would you pray with me and ask God to help us with this? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and the incredible reminder that it is uh, of so many things, uh, not least of which is your grace that we wretched sinners Uh, rebellious people have been accepted, have been loved, and have been brought into your family, and that you love to have fellowship with us. You don't just love us, you like us, uh, and you um, equip us to to grow with each other uh, for the sake of your glory, as this passage says. So we pray that you would do that work, that, that we would be like the good soil, and that the seed of your word would really take root and that we would bear fruit for you. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.